0: Hey, hello there, and welcome to the show. Whether you are a longtime wrong thinker or just uh, checking it out for the first time, I don't know, maybe on a dare. No, seriously, people, I dare you to listen. Oh, wait, take your blood pressure medication. Actually, I, I don't think it's quite that bad, but yes, welcome to the program. Here we, we push back against the official narrative, not because I'm right, not because I have the answers, but because, uh, because someone's telling us. There's an official narrative. You can't think outside of these lines. And that should be a danger signal. Any thinking person, when you hear that, should be like, wait a minute, (laughs) I have some questions. Well, fortunately, we have some answers here for you today. I'm very happy to welcome my friend, Dr. Shannon Brooks, uh, founder of Monticello College. Uh, They're one of our sponsors here. Shannon, great to connect up with you once again.
2: Yeah, Brian, great to talk to you.
0: Now, you and I are are here to talk about some pretty important stuff. But for people who are meeting you for the first time, I'm going to ask you, just give us a little bit of background. Who are you? What do you do?
2: Uh, Well, yeah, I've been involved in higher education, uh, uh, specifically in alternative. I think we call it alternative higher education these days. But right now, uh, the last six years, I uh, have been running a small liberal arts college on a farm in southeastern Utah. Um, and so we've got 80 acres. The kids come here. They, they learn the liberal arts and uh, run a farm. So they're learning all kinds of, of of great things, including our topic today, and that is the Georgics. Okay.
0: So, so to introduce people to the Georgics, I, I'm first going to paint a little picture for them about uh, why knowing the Georgics would matter. And the picture that I want you to have in your mind, I'm just going to kind of describe this for you. This is from a friend of mine down in Texas, which uh, you may have heard is uh, experiencing some troubles here of late, namely uh, some weather-related troubles. He sent me about five different pictures. And this is in a grocery store. And it looks to be, I mean, this is a big, clean grocery store. But when I say clean, I mean there is nothing in the shelves. It is is—it is almost, well, I take it back. It looks like there might be a little something in the vegan section. But, you know, you get the point. It is, it is picked over because an emergency arose. People panicked. They started grabbing food. And... Shannon, to me, this illustrated something that uh, most people think we're never going to see empty store shelves, right? They'll just send more trucks with more food. But sometimes things can break down and break down quickly to the point where you are having to be more self-reliant. And now I'm going to ask you to relate the pictures I just described here to why understanding Georgics is something in in, in our best interest.
2: Yeah, yeah, Brian, that's great. Um, you know, it it, it doesn't require... You know, any kind of conspiracy theory to, to see the value of the idea of, you know, being a little self reliant, being a little prepared. Natural disasters like we're experiencing over there right now um, can, can cause these very things. The, the concept of, of Georgics goes clear back to the Greeks and Romans. And it's the idea of, of, of being a self-producer. You, you produce the things you need or, or, or they're produced locally. Um, uh, we've seen too many times in history where uh, a military victory was, was achieved simply because we cut off the food supply because the food supply was imported instead of created locally. Uh, you know, the same thing applies here. And uh, when I grew up as a kid on a farm, we, we went shopping once about every three months. Uh, and we had all this stuff on site. And in, in, in terms of, you know, farm implements and, and parts and things, we always had three and four of everything. And so we didn't ever have to go anywhere. We just went to the shop and got the stuff. And, and that made us very secure, made us very um, anti-fragile. We were not vulnerable to what was going on in the outside economy because we had our own economy. And that's really what we're talking about here. Yeah, I,
0: I know that depending on where a person's awareness is, um, you know, the the concept of being prepared has gone. It's come a long ways that used to be to to many people. It was considered a fringe thing, right? It's the crazy guy who thinks the world's going to end someday. But as you get older, as you have more experience and you recognize um, good times come and go bad times come and go. You know, history doesn't necessarily repeat itself, but there are cycles that can be observed. And there's times where you can look around and say, OK, this is this is going to be a season of, of difficulty. And we've seen this before. You know, anybody who's read The Fourth Turning understands that um, you can see these things play out like seasons. But let's let's talk a little bit about Georgics and where we get them. Um, when people hear the name Homer, I suspect a vast majority of people would think Simpson. We're talking about a slightly different Homer. Tell us about uh, the, the Homer of ancient Greece.
2: Well, you know, we don't know much about him, but he is accredited with um, having talked about this idea of Georgics. First, about 700 BC. By 35 BC, we have Virgil talking about it. Now, this is a different guy. We do know a lot about Virgil. In fact, he wrote a book called The Georgics, and he's extolling the virtues of farming um, as as a, a stable, secure. Foundational element of Roman society that that those who engaged in farming, and that in fact Roman society was brought into being because of self sufficient farmers, and that not only were they prepared in terms of uh, you know physical side food and those kinds of things, um, but it talks all through the literature of ancient Greece and Rome and then a lot of early American literature of of this the the psychological social ramifications, emotional ramifications of living in a self-reliant lifestyle. That it creates a very different kind of citizen than does a very vulnerable urban kind of lifestyle. And and they just this is talked about over and over again. You you have uh, luminaries like Jefferson talking about this, that this is that this is American. In fact the, the American founding fathers called themselves the new romans specifically because of the concepts and ideas behind the georgics
0: interesting now this doesn't mean that a person has to drop everything they're doing and and move to a farm does it
2: no no in fact the way we say it is not everybody should be a farmer you know doctors lawyers whatever but everybody should farm meaning wherever you're at you, everyone's on some piece of land. Um, grow food. Engage in the soil. Learn about that. It's such a grounding concept to grow things to be attached to the soil. It's it's a part of being an American that we've lost. Um, Georgia is one of the five American ideals that 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 the founders promoted from the beginning, from probably 1670s uh, on. Um, those who, who were the progenitor to, to Americans and then later became the Americans talked about these concepts. And Georgics is a very huge part of that. Being grounded, being connected to the earth, you know, living in terms of the seasons and, and just understanding the world of nature changes who we are as human beings.
0: Yeah, it's. I I think a lot of us have have uh, a little disconnect when it comes to where food comes from, and and I'm not knocking any of the conveniences that we enjoy. I love being able to go to the store and get what I need, or stop at a restaurant if I'm feeling spendy, you know, whatever. But very few people have the skills to where they could they could you know reliably grow food that uh, could either augment their diet or if they had to live on it, you know, I think I think a lot of us would be well, it would be a lot thinner.
2: Well, you, you know, that, that's interesting you bring that up because, you know, here we are in Utah and there's there's a culture here um, of, you know, storing food and, and, and being prepared that way. The, the problem with that is this. Um, what if your emergency extends longer than the food supply you have? If you don't know how to perpetuate that, you don't know how to grow food, um, you don't you, you get one shot at this you know if you run out of food and you throw some seeds in the ground that you had saved up you know thank goodness but you don't know how to grow um you, and you mess that up you, you know you're good to, you you're kind of going uh you know on the air fast uh until the next growing season and you know that the whole population wipes out at that point so you you need to have some experience on how to use these seeds and how to save seeds and all this stuff how, how to preserve all this food and, and the only way to do that that I know of is to be actively doing it each year so that it's part of your culture.
0: Agreed. And, and there's something that happens here. You, I think you used the word um, grounding, how this is kind of a grounding experience. And Shannon, I don't know. How, we've got about a minute here before we go to break. But um, how do we help people catch the idea that there is more to life than simple materialism? Because there's an awful lot of messages being broadcast at them that say, no, no, no. That's where purpose is found.
2: Yeah, you know, that's a good question. We do it by bringing students on campus, put them in the the nature scenario, not only on the farm here, but in the wilderness around us. And that does the trick. Uh, Outside of actually getting out of the the non-nature environment into the nature environment, um, I, I don't think there is a way, Brian. I think you have to bite the bullet and do it. Okay,
0: we can explore this a little bit more when we come back from the break. Shannon Brooks, uh, Dr. Shannon Brooks from Monticello College, is my guest. And if you haven't heard the word Georgics before, well, now you have. Maybe we'll throw some handy links in where you can, can learn a little bit more about it. We'll be back right after these messages.
1: The Brian Hyde Show. This is the Brian Hyde Show. All right, once again, welcome back to the show.
0: I am joined by Dr. Shannon Brooks, who is the founder of Monticello College. He's also one of the sponsors of our program. And we're talking about Georgics. And Shannon, maybe I need to backtrack a little bit and ask you, um, assuming that people are hearing Georgics for the first time, you know, they're, what, what, how would you describe this to somebody?
2: Uh, uh, that, that's that's a great question. Yeah, we, we sometimes get going just making assumptions that everybody's with us. Ge- Georgic is an interesting word. As we mentioned earlier, it's got Greek and Roman uh, um, uh, origins. The etymology or the, the hist- word history of the word Georgic is interesting. Geo for earth, uh, org or work uh, means to work, and then ik, of course, means related to. So it literally means working the earth. And... Um, if you if you go from Greek and Roman times, it, medieval Europe, uh, Georgics was a very important uh, element they had there. But let's go to American history. Uh, you know, the first permanent settlement in America was Jamestown, and, and the people in Jamestown, they went through when they first got there, uh, first few years was called the starving time because uh, they were trying to implement Christian communism and things, and it just didn't work. Finally, the leadership said, here's a bag of seeds, there's some land, knock yourself out. Whatever you grow, you get to keep, and voila, um, it started to work well. And then, you know, that just continued on through, through, uh, through United States history. One of the greatest uh, sources of the concept of Georgics and how important it is to human life um, was John Locke. And he talked a lot about the idea that the Earth is a common gift to humanity, um, and the way, that you, the way that you earn your piece of it is that you improve it. You work it, you grow it, and so Georgia has been been part of what we've been doing for a long time um, in humanity. But it, it's it's a huge part. You go back to John Adams, you go back to Thomas Jefferson, George Washington. They were all planters, growers. In fact, the idea of Georgia culture living that way uh, by 1797. Um, excuse me, 1790, 90% of Americans were engaged in the Georgics. By the time you get, uh, 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 by the 1850s, it's down to 64%. By the time you get to the 1970s, it's less than 5%. Wow. In the last census, farming did not even show up in the last census as a, as, a, as a career occupation. So we've really gone away from it. And so when we talk about American culture, we're talking about American culture with Georgics in it, not 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 an urban base, but a rural base.
0: And, you know, people don't understand you can do this even if you, even if you live in the city, um, someone who lives, you know, in an apartment or a penthouse or something, if they have a balcony or something, they can still take part in it. And I, I think I've heard you describe this as cooperative arts. When you are growing things, when you're raising animals, or uh, you know you're you're using the milk or using their wool to to make products and stuff, um, it's, is is that not what what's referred to as, as cooperative arts?
2: Yeah, yeah, you know, like like being a midwife. Um, that that lady's going to have a baby, whether you're there or not. But but helping that process, you're helping something that's already happening, and that's the same thing with with plant with plants and animals. They're already happening. We get involved, and you know it's not the same as making shoes. That leather's just going to lay there till you manipulate it. So it yeah, it's it's part of the concept of the cooperative arts. Um, and, and and in terms of urban, there's so much you can do in an urban environment. There, there are guys that have completely uh, remade parts of of Kansas City. Um, in a very urban environment, by revitalizing every strip of bare ground they can find, and they grow tons and tons and tons of food, inner city, there's all kinds of ways to do this, but you have to get into the idea of it's on you. You've got to grow the food. You've got to be the farmer, and you can do it from your balcony. You can do it on a roof of your building. You can do it in a, in a patch, you know. Uh, uh, this, these guys in Kansas City are doing it and the. Uh, there's a the road, and then there's a kind of a concrete spot, and then there's uh, a patch of grass, and then the sidewalk, and they're opening up all those patches of grass and growing tons of food on the roadways. Um, so this can be done, and, and is being done all over the country.
0: So for people who who want to learn more about this, um, look, I want to sound a warning note. Um, books or, or things that were written by by Virgil. Or things that were written by Homer. Some of these classics can be daunting if you haven't if you haven't read something like that before. Is, is there a way that you recommend people, you know, dip their toe in the water and begin, or is it best to just you know cannonball it?
2: Yeah. Well, for sure, do it with a friend. Do it with a group. Uh, there are so many resources online. You can get summaries of these books. You can get outlines of these books. You can, you know, Sparks Notes, that, that kind of thing, really helps you get to the essence because it is old language. It, it's hard to read, and, um, but, but it's so worth doing. Um, Virgil especially has so many great things to say about the impact of of not only being independent because you grow your own food, but how growing your own food changes your psyche, how it impacts you, how it brings serenity and calmness to your life. I mean, there's so much to this.
0: Okay. Um, talk to me about some of the other things uh, that, that pertain to uh, – you know, to the soil, for instance, I know one of the programs you have at uh, at Monticello College has to do with uh, not only, you know, hey, this is how to have a great garden or how to have a greenhouse. But you guys take this down to to the science of, of the soil itself. And I'm, the, the exact term that you use um, escapes me at the moment. But but talk to me about some of the deep studies that that you do in learning how to work those cooperative arts when it comes to growing food.
2: Well. Um, one of the programs we use is called permaculture. Um, that's not specific to the soil, but it is specific to looking at nature, figuring out the patterns of nature, and then working with those patterns. Instead of fighting it, you know, we, we do this in, in water management. We we make sure that the water doesn't run straight down the hill, but we, we, cut, we, we create scenarios so it slows down, sinks in, those kinds of things. Instead of fighting it, we work with it. Um, s- same thing here. The soil is... Is something that's really been lost, uh, and there's a lot of great books out there um, that, that that go into this. But developing the soil, the soil is a living thing. It's it is it's dirt, it's mineral, but is there's a ton of life, um, incredibly uh, large amounts of microbiology going on there, and that's what you're trying to develop. As you develop the microbiology in this stuff we call dirt, it becomes soil. And that has a, a direct relationship to the plant health. And it's just really fascinating and ex- and exciting. And, and, and you can do so much if you'll focus on soil health.
0: Okay. What's the benefit of a person knowing and understanding and applying these principles? I mean, life is pretty comfortable. Shannon, make the case for me that... Uh, you know, as to why a person would want to expand and maybe push against the their uh, you know their mental boundaries or their uh, the limits of their knowledge
2: well, for one, again, we go back to to the grounding effect of all of this. It's a very peaceful um, very serenity oriented kind of thing to do. But beyond that, um, it's just the idea that I grew up on a farm and learned, and that is be be self-reliant. Um, engage in the means of production yourself the your, your liberty, your level of liberty is in direct relationship to how much you produce of what you consume. If you're 100% dependent on other people and other places for everything you consume, that's great when there's no no problem. But the second a natural disaster comes on or something happens with the government or there's, you're invaded or whatever, suddenly you're done. And um, if, if you en- en- engage in the means of production and you produce what you consume then you don't have those issues it's the same thing with food security if your food is all the food you eat is produced within 30 or 40 miles of where you live you're in a much more secure situation than if you're depending on the grapes that are imported from Chile. um and and it's a reality most people don't sit there and think about it we go to costco we buy our stuff we go home yeah except you're completely dependent on that supplier and that that retailer for everything you have, and if suddenly they're not there, like we experienced with the toilet paper a year ago, right? Um, you're you're in a big you're in a big problem, and like they're experiencing right now in Texas.
0: Okay, Shannon, what's the best way for people to learn more about Monticello College?
2: MonticelloCollege.org.
0: MonticelloCollege.org. Okay, I'll have a link in the show notes. Dr. Shannon Brooks, thank you so much for being my guest today.
2: My pleasure,
1: Brian. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show.
0: All right, welcome back to the show. Our program is brought to you in part by Rio del Sion Home Lot's. You can find a contact link in the show notes at com. I've got all of my sponsors listed there, ways to get a hold of every one of them, if, if for no other reason, just to tell them, hey, thanks for making this program possible. In fact, I want to just take a moment here and thank each and every one of you who uh, who very generously make this program possible. That includes those of you who are patrons, those of you who are, are donors, and, and, and especially just anybody who tunes in and says, okay, let me give this a try and says, I like what's being said here. I like what's being shared. I don't know if it's because, you know, you you find that there are people who think as you do or who value some of the things that you do. But if you're one of those who is just looking for timely, credible, you know, thoughtful information that's not based in partisan hatred of this side or that side, well, this is this is a good place to find it. By the way, I subscribe to a number of different uh, email lists um, because I consider these to be good sources, not just, you know, for here's here's what's happening with politics, but a lot of different areas of life. The Foundation for Economic Education is one of my most trusted sources. They draw from a very wide variety of writers, but these writers are all very grounded in the principles of free market economics and in in the, the principles of liberty. So, yeah. Do they have a bias? Absolutely. And it's, it's exactly the right kind of bias, which is people should be free as much as possible to act in their own interest. And sometimes this brings you to some really interesting things because it's not all about, well, the founders signing the Declaration of Independence. I mean, that's part of the story, but it can also be seen in things that are around you and I every single day. For instance... Um, in my email inbox today, I received a, a list of different articles and and they, sometimes they'll bring back kind of a blast from the past. This is one from January of 2017, and it's called The Epic Failure of the Government Gas Can. Clyde Wayne Cruz is the author. And I look, I only offer this because I have seen this from enough people who either uh, that I'm friends with that take place in like, you know, they, they like to go out and ride motorcycles or otherwise uh, just use gas cans a lot. I hear a lot of complaints about what the government has done to the gas can. And frankly, when I go to fill my lawnmower, every time I go to mow my lawn, I don't have the kindest thoughts when, when I realize how much more difficult it is than it has to be. Do you ever wonder why it got that way? If you don't use a gas can, maybe it never crosses your mind. If you do, trying to pour gas out of one of these monstrous devices is, is not very easy. This is how Clyde Wayne Cruz puts it. He says part of living on Earth is mowing its grass and performing outdoor chores. Last International Earth Day, while the globe held hands and celebrated Gaia and executive climate change agreements, he says I was monkeying with several gas cans in the storage shed. Why several? Well, he says I watched all the folks after 2012's Hurricane Sandy lining up for blocks, not for personal wind turbines or solar power packs, but fighting over a gallon or two of gasoline. So he says back then I got my basic prepper supplies with outgoing excessively overboard, of course, and that included several five gallon gas cans. He says I filled them up and added fuel stabilizer so they'd keep a while and made plans to rotate the fuel a time or two a year. But he said back when I first tried to use these new gas cans a few months after their purchase, he said I was shocked at their new spring loaded trap game style uh, environmental protection agency engineered spouts. He says, I quickly learned what many outraged boat and outdoor forum folks already knew, and that is, you need three hands to operate today's gas can spouts. You'll start each project spilling more gas than you get into your mower, motorcycle, car, or whatever. In other words, you will create more vapor emissions than you ever would have otherwise. So what the heck happened? Well, he says the EPA banned normal gas cans in 2009, following the pioneers of the California Air Resources Board, which intones the Portable Fuel Container or PFC re- regulations are an important concept in our efforts to improve California's air quality. PFCs, also known as gas cans, also known as gas cans. Wow. You can just see the mentality just from the ridiculous government acronym and paternalistic condescending language. So, no gas cans available for sale anymore have vents on either the uh, top, on the opposite top side. So, when you're trying to pour, you get this sloshing, heaving mess, burping gasoline eruptions leaking from the complex yet flimsy spout that easily breaks. And he says, Go see for yourself at Ace or Home Depot. It's like a giant joke, a societal dribble glass prank imposed on the imp- entire population. And then he asks, What was the EPA thinking? You could barely pour a simple 14-ounce can of evaporated milk without popping a notch in the opposite side, let alone a heavy five-gallon container. He says, Googling this weekend to find out more about what happened to American normalcy, he says, I found Jeff Tucker's How Government Wrecked the Gas Can, topping the, church result, the ch- search results. Rather. And he says, I observed, or rather, the, Jeffrey Tucker observed, nobody would make such a device without a vent except under duress. And here the author says, that's for sure. Now he says, I recall filling up anything and everything with gas for my mini bike and lawnmower as a kid, like milk jugs. We'd pour with a funnel and not spill since we didn't have enough spare cash to waste gasoline. In fact, he says, come to think of it, we'd ride to the gas station from my grandparents' tobacco farm sitting on the lip of the pickup truck bed, which I can't do anymore either. At least we can still pour a pack of Tom's peanuts into a bottle of Coke and drink that. Jeffrey Tucker, he says, observed that naturally most of us buy gas cans only one or two at a time. And, you know, new generations aren't going to know any better. But it's a worse signature of a string of once normal things that work worse thanks to geniuses in the federal bureaucracy. Tell me if any of these ring a bell for you. Tucker says soaps don't work. Toilets don't flush. Clothes washers don't clean. Light bulbs don't illuminate. Refrigerators break too soon. Paint discolors, lawnmowers have to be hacked, and it's all caused by idiotic government regulations that are wrecking our lives one consumer product at a time, all in ways we hardly notice. End quote. Now here Mr. Cruz says, I do an annual roundup of federal regulations, and even I hadn't paid much attention to the gas spouts issue until I got stuck with them. I'd noticed there's no good toy surprise in Cracker Jacks anymore, though, or in cereal boxes either. I should have asked some Consumer Product Safety Commission directors about that recently when we were discussing with them the disappearance of chemistry sets that were actual chemistry sets. Anyway, in order to harm the Earth less with a normal non-polluting spout, I was wondering about the workarounds for the inhumane vapor-spewing trick spouts the environmentally unfriendly EPA forces you to buy to increase pollution. With a bit of searching, he says, I found the so-called easy pour water, in quotation marks, jugs. Note, you and I cannot use these alternatives to pour gasoline into vehicles or equipment since that is an illegal non-EPA bureaucrat approved hack, but they can be used to pour liquid, however. So he says, pictured above is one of my water jugs. Yeah, that's the ticket. Equipped with a brand new easy pour spout of the formerly generic and universal or formerly generic and universal. You can see the green-collared EPA pollution emitter on the floor beside it for contrast. And there's also a vent I haven't installed yet, just need to drill a hole so the water doesn't slosh around when I pour with it. Now remember, this is for informational purposes only. This is not a gas can. And then he says, I think I'm going to go out and grill some steaks now before the EPA gets a hold of charcoal grills after spending nearly a million of your tax dollars studying flare-up reduction technology. Again, this is, Cl- this is Clyde Wayne Cruz, who is uh, vice president or was vice president for policy and director of technology studies at the Competitive Enterprise Institute. So I'll have this link in the show notes, and I would encourage you to look at it. It looks like a very legit uh, water jug or water can that he has. And it definitely looks like it would do a better job than uh, some of the stuff that we're re- required to use. Look, I can appreciate these regulations probably were done with the best of intentions. But if there's one thing that, that government has a habit of doing, it's overdoing whatever it sets out to do. Well, if a little bit is good, then a lot more should be even better. We've seen this with the lockdowns. It's not that they didn't work. It's just that we didn't do them hard enough. Crazy. Crazy. And by the way, the Foundation for Economic Education, if you go to their website, feed.org, you can sign up for an email to land in your inbox. I think they, they send them pretty much seven days a week. Um, not everybody has time to read every article. I happen to be looking for, for content, so I'm, I usually go through and I'll at the very least peruse them. The ones I really like, I'll, I'll read and then you know, bring and share with you. But if you want to have a good, informed take on what's going on that's not rooted just in partisan politics... This is a really solid resource, and the good news is, you know, I mean, I think the foundation for economic education. Primarily, their audience is young people, which is good because we need to be training, you know, whoever's going to be carrying the torch forward. But uh, this is this is great stuff, even for uh, those of us, you know, on the on the north side of life, so to speak. All right, got to take a quick break. We'll come back in just a few moments. Got some really interesting insights from a writer by the name of Ethan Yang. His parents know a little bit about what it was like to live under tyranny, and they've got some, some good wisdom to share with us.
1: This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, welcome back to the show. Had
0: an interesting conversation with some family this weekend, and uh, actually it was my wife who was sharing the story of a friend of ours who, uh, along with her family, escaped from Cambodia. They escaped from the, uh, the clutches of the Khmer Rouge back in the late 1970s, early 80s. If you remember, that was, uh, I mean, the Killing Fields, that was a real thing. And this young girl, along with her mom and uh, a couple of siblings, I believe, uh, made their way to America. It took some time for them to get here, but she has a very powerful story about uh, what uh, what it means to escape real, horrible, totalitarian thinking. I mean, the kind that would would willingly go after and kill people, you know, simply because it's, you know, someone who has glasses must be educated and therefore you're a threat to uh, whatever worldview we're trying to push. Now, I actually had her on the show here some time back. Her name is Chantra, and uh, I I think we had a a kind of a difficult phone connection. It was a little bit hard to to understand her. She has a little bit of an accent, but um, bottom line is she and her family saw what was happening with their government as the Khmer Rouge came to power in Cambodia. Her father was actually an Air Force officer, and he came to her mom and her and her, her siblings. She was very, very young maybe four years old and told them we can go right now. There is a plane fueled and warming up on the tarmac at the airport and it's waiting for us. We can go on there. We can fly to the United States and and we can get get out of here. And uh, her mom said, Mike, our country would never do that to us. And, of course, it wasn't long before the Khmer Rouge came into power and here came the, you know, the kids, the enforcers, you know, with their clubs to uh, to round people up. Um, Apparently, uh, Chantra's dad pretended to be a taxi driver for some time, but he was taken away very, very early on when the crackdown came. And she and her mom and her siblings were taken away and were worked in the killing fields and starved and, and abused for some time before they were able to escape to Vietnam and then make their way to America. Now, I don't tell you this to depress you, and I'm certainly not trying to suggest that, uh, by the way, we're, you know, right on the verge of our own killing fields. But I know there are people right now within the sound of my voice who are going, look, I feel that something is very, very wrong in the way things are going right now. And it doesn't really matter. You don't have to have a particular political point of view to recognize there are some some really dark, dark clouds on the horizon And and they're closing in fast. And I think there are people who, you know, mean well when they say our government would never do that to us. And I think, well, you haven't read a lot of history. If 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 you believe that uh, that government is always going to act in the best interest of its citizens, it doesn't. It acts in the best interest of who's in power. So I wanted to share some excerpts from this article. This is from Ethan Yang, who writes for the American Institute for Economic Research, another organization that I strongly would recommend subscribe to their emails because they will land them in your inbox about seven days a week. There's always terrific, well-researched and well-documented information from which you can help, you know, consider and shape your worldview. This is an essay titled Insight from My Mom on Freedom. And Ethan Yang says, there's certainly something poetic about my existence, being the son of two immigrant families that fled authoritarian regimes in Asia. Asia." He says, my father's side came from Taiwan, which at the time was ruled by a fascist Leninist military regime known as the Kuomintang. They ruled the uh, island with an iron fist. He says, my mother's side fled Cambodia, which was ruled by the communist Khmer Rouge that killed almost a quarter of the population and plunged the country into despotism and despair. In fact, he wrote about that experience in his alma mater's newspaper. In short, he says, though, I grew up hearing her stories about how she witnessed some of the most wretched actions ever committed by mankind. The results of the most insane far left policies ever conceived, like outright genocide of ethnic minorities, the complete takeover of the economy, which led to mass starvation and torture and rape beyond comprehension. Ethan Yang says, my mother, whose background is in finance and cares little for political theory and policy, gave an answer that made me pause. But now in the age of COVID-19 has become clear. She said all that terrible stuff didn't have much to do with communism. It's just that people were being terrible. Now, he says, at the time, I found this comment to be disappointing. Of course, communism was the problem, right? Don't you know that authoritarian systems of government, left or right, lead to genocide and domination? That market systems like private property, competition, and prices are needed to efficiently allocate resources? Now this, of course, is all true, but he says, Now I realize my mother's comment was either intentionally or unintentionally touched on something far more foundational. Human nature. And here's how he sums it up. He says, People suck. We are capable of doing terrible things to one another, like murder and rape. We're greedy, self-interested, opportunistic, and will use every tool to get ahead of one another. We think we know everything and what's best for other people, even though we know nothing about them. Just look at what's happening and what has happened in countries like the United States, the longest-running liberal democracy on the planet. Lockdowns are crippling the economy, and the people at the top seem to have absolutely no problem with it. As great as the market and private enterprise are, the actors in that system have also contributed to our oppression. Take the New York Times, a company among many others in the age of COVID-19 that continues to sow despair and fear, while also conducting themselves as if they were the ruling class in a new America feudal system. People being awful to each other in this country goes back to the very beginning of American history, despite our Constitution and powerful systems of freedom. Slavery, segregation, the internment of Japanese Americans, the oppression of women, prohibition, the war on drugs, the genocide of the Native Americans, the list goes on. It doesn't matter if the system is the, is communism, fascism, or liberal democracy. People have it in their nature to dominate each other. So here's his plea. Ethan Yang says, knowing what people are capable of, if given the tools to oppress one another... At this point, he says, I would say I'm begging you as the reader to stand for freedom at a time when it's clearly under assault. When the government takes away liberty, it seldom gives it back. And he says the abuse of power just keeps growing. Although he says, I just explained how people commit terrible acts, even under a system of markets and limited government. In the words of Winston Churchill, quote, indeed, it has been said that democracy is the worst form of government, except for all those other forms that have been tried from time to time, end quote. Ethan Yang says we need systems that disperse power and uphold personal or individual liberty, not because they're flawless, but because we know what happens when we deviate. All the problems we now have, whether it be lockdowns or problems associated with private companies, will only grow exponentially without strong protections of our markets of our freedoms, rather, and the market. He says proponents of limited government and markets subscribe to a constrained view of human nature, that it is that we believe it is unchanging. People will always be self-interested, power-hungry, and ignorant. Therefore, we need systems that can restrain those urges and challenge society in a productive, or channel society, rather, in a productive direction. Nobel laureate Eleanor Ostrom was fond of saying, or was quoted saying, rather, while all these institu- while all institutions rather are subject to takeover by opportunistic individuals and the potential for perverse dynamics, a political system that has multiple centers of power at differing scales provides more opportunities to innovate and to intervene so as to collect correct rather a maldistribution of authority and outcomes. end quote. In other words, people need freedom and autonomy, not just to make, you know, precise decisions with their lives, but also to check the ambitions of others who would try to dominate them. He says the founders crafted the U.S. Constitution with a very pessimistic view of human nature in politics. The Declaration of Independence is essentially a grievance list of what the King of England and his officers did with their powers. They did not believe that American leaders would be any different. So they created a constitution with a vast list of protections on civil liberties, embraced federalism and devised a separation of powers doctrine. And he said this they did because they understood that the most important thing government can do is protect freedom. They understood that when given the chance to wield power, it's not a question of if or when it's a question of how many and how terrible will their atrocities be. That's why individual liberty and limited government matter. Not just because free people are capable of amazing things, but because people abuse power. We've seen the terrible things that can happen in a country as free as America. Just imagine what can happen if we were less free. It should send a chill down everyone's spine that our system of liberal democracy is being unraveled to the tune of a cheering crowd. I like this. He says... uh, human beings are and always will be self-interested and power-hungry. History, and especially his own family history, has shown us what happens when we lower our guard in favor of the tempting utopianism of big government. And then he drives it home by pointing out that liberty is always unfinished business. And the cost is eternal vigilance, both public and private. Now, we can certainly all agree on the margins about how free we ought to be, but he says the most important thing we all must agree on is is that we should be free. I'll have a link to this in the show notes. Thanks again for joining us.
1: This is The Brian Hyde Show.